yeah, you might you might spend some time with me in Khan Academy on Math One and Math Two and Algebra and functions and relations all all over again. I'm smiling. I don't know about you guys. I'm smiling too, but maybe for a different reason. <laughs> <laughs> So, hey, everybody, welcome to episode 170 of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Mitra, and I'm in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Jaime Lopez Jr. in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And I'm also joined by Mark Rubin down in San Jose, California. Hello. All righty. So we have one ask MTJC. I was, uh, I went on a bit of a rant last week about uh, the fact that the server, macOS server downloads are not available. And uh, I got a, a reply from Paul Wilkinson or Paul Wilco on Twitter saying that you can get the, go to the developer section and get the macOS server which is true. We've always been able to get the server copies for free, but um, that's not necessarily true anymore. It used to be like back in you know the 80s and 90s, or 90s, I guess, um, in the 2000s, we were getting server uh, copies for free. Resellers used to get them as well. Um, but since they went to this Mac App Store uh, version, still not available. And actually, I, I went and did uh, searched up the numbers because I know I kind of floundered around a bit last week. The current version of macOS server that's on the App Store is uh, 5.4, and that's um, minimum requirement for that is iSierra. Um, you can also get server 3.2.2, which I think runs on Yosemite, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, LCAP and Sierra would would need server 5.1 or 5.2. I wanted to upgrade my server to Sierra, which is the last um, OS you can put on a 2009 XServe, which was the last year that the XServes were officially made. But I guess since they're end of life, Apple really doesn't care, right? Um, and I'll talk about it in my pick as to why I was trying to upgrade my server, because I was actually able to successfully get the first task out of the way. So I have been able to upgrade my server, but again, alas, I've not been able to, I can't go much past um, my copy, which is running on Snow Line, sorry, Snow Line, Mountain Line, Mountain Line is the, the version I'm talking about. So that's our bit of Ask MTJC. Thank you for that. Um, we have a couple of follow-up items. Jaime, you have one here for, about IBM. Want to fill us in? Yes, so we were talking about the blockchain for a couple episodes and how that might be used as a distributed ledger. And in that case, I think we were talking about shipping of iPhones and tracking those. Uh, in this case, uh, there's other sorts of markets that are out there that people might be interested in. So Canada is legalizing marijuana and apparently the government of British Columbia has asked for comments on the best way to manage their province's marijuana market. And as part of that, IBM has filed a uh, proposal that would use the blockchain to track all of that goodness. So nice, yeah. I don't have much to say about it other than, you know, blockchain is definitely a, an interesting technology that people are, are really getting into. It's it's not just Bitcoin. Um, I think if you've listened to the other episodes, you, you get more of that hint that it can be used for other things. Right, right. Yeah, so what Canada is doing is as I think as of January or as of our Canada Day, which is July 1st next year, 2018, uh, they say that uh, uh, marijuana for um, what do they call it? Um, hobby marijuana? No, they have a term for it. I forget. Recreational, probably. Recreational, yeah, recreational marijuana use and procurement will be um, made available to the public on July 1st. We currently we do have medical marijuana, of course, right now. And if you have and there's plenty of like sort of shops popping up all over the place trying to capitalize on that market, but uh, they keep getting shut down but uh, in Ontario for instance I think the like we have a, a liquor board that handles the distribution of alcohol through their stores LCBO and we have a brewer's retail or beer store as it's now known that handles the sale of beer um, and so there'll be something similar to that probably the LCBO or something like that will handle the sale of marijuana uh, for recreational use as well and in Quebec they have that you can buy like beer and alcohol at corner stores so who knows what's going to happen there with respect to, um, to the sale of marijuana 
that's the story behind that. But yeah, um, and I think I, I think I mentioned that I, I was following a story about regulating power through blockchain um, in Europe. That was just a, a program that was just starting up, and it was interesting that uh, I, saw, I was looking to Spark CBC Spark, which is a um, radio show that's on Saturday mornings or Sunday mornings here at one o'clock. But it's also a podcast. You can get it on your favorite podcatcher. They were talking last week about the fact that one of the things about uh, Bitcoin in particular, which uses blockchain, is that the whole validation of Bitcoin requires a lot of uh, energy, right? Like a, a computer energy and, and electricity and things like that. And some, sometimes it actually costs a lot of money to, um, I guess, to validate the... Because they, they, what they do is they, they send your... If you want to be a host of one of these uh, miners or mines, if you will, they send your computer a, a rather complex calculation to run. And that's what... Uh, that's to validate the computer. And um, uses a lot of electrical energy. So it's kind of interesting that, that uh, um, you know, as we moved more towards digital type technologies, we still are reliant on um, electricity in some way. Kind of interesting stuff. You know? I don't know if you heard the story about Puerto Rico, but somebody was sort of uh, pointed out the fact that all these electric cars running around would be um, out of luck if you were in somewhere like a situation like Puerto Rico, where I think there's still parts of the island that don't have electrical energy available to them, right? So how would you charge your electric car? Things to think about. Yeah, that, that whole infrastructure sort of thing is something that we have to be very cognizant of as we build more and more things on top of what's assumed to be essential and unchangeable um, limitations, say, such as, you know, I plug something into the wall, it draws power. Like, I just assume that. Um, apparently, that assumption is not always correct. So uh, it's something for people to think about for sure. Yes. Well, I mean, even even water coming out of a, out of a faucet, I mean, requires some sort of infrastructure behind that, right? So interesting yeah, stuff. No yeah, so it's situation like Puerto Rico that they have gas either, though. They so, don't have gas, right? No, in, in, in Puerto Rico, they might not have gasoline available yeah, either. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, not just the electricity that was down. Yeah, no, I did, I did hear actually an interview with somebody down there, forgot who it was, um, was talking about, you know, yeah, some companies that are up and running have diesel, so they must be getting gas from somewhere. But yeah, but I mean, that's the whole, the whole um, I guess the point is that we take for granted all this uh, um, access to uh, power generation that we have, whether it's through gas or uh, even coal, I think, right? Um, power, power, we need more power. Anywho, the next uh, point we're talking on our uh, list of follow-up stuff is on, um, I was mentioning last week that, um, and apologies for those of you who don't have iPhone 10s, but um, that uh, when a face ID only works when you hold your phone, when your phone is, is being held in portrait mode and is can can make out your, your face. But uh, Rene Ritchie points out here in one of his articles on iMore that you can in fact turn off what's called attention mode, which is, which is that you have to be looking at the phone if you want to want to use the phone. A lot of people were claiming that, like me, I sometimes you will know, have my phone sitting on my desk and I want to basically just, you know, tap into it and start using it. And the face ID thing always pops up. So, but you can turn off this attention mode and which will, which will allow the uh, phone to um, identify you with your face slightly askew from the normal position, right? So, and that works pretty well too. But um, so in case you were wondering, like my, my comment about the fact you have to be looking at it in portrait mode, it doesn't work in obscure landscape, but it, it has to do with whether or not the phone can make out your face and nose and mouth kind of thing. Or sorry, eyes, nose and mouth. How it did, part of how it identifies you. So that's that. And then, um, oh, but yeah. So there's one more thing we've talked about. Lyft and Uber a number of times. Lyft not up until recently has not been available in Canada, but they've just announced, um, and this was an exclusive story in the Star, but now it's, you know, I think The Verge posted something. I mean, you had a link there on our Slack um, about the fact that Lyft is coming to Toronto. Toronto is going to be, I think, one of the first places where they're going to try expanding outside of the United States. I wasn't aware that there were any other places. I think this is the first and only international yeah. 
they do oh, trust. Yeah, yeah. So they're talking about, uh, yeah, if you read the article here, it says to talk about um, expanding into the greater Toronto area, which is, you know, we have Toronto and then we have, you know, the the um, uh, number of uh, boroughs that are outside of, they're not necessarily actually part of, well, GTA is what we call the sort of conglomeration of all these, I think there's 10 boroughs um, that make up Toronto. Uh, and Hamilton, which is another, which is just down the street from us or down the road from us, uh, is another large city. So, um, and of course, there's a nice smiley, happy, oh, it's interesting. So this picture, I don't know if you can see in the, in the Toronto Star article of this of this Uber driver who's happy to to uh, say he's going to jump on the lift. Um, that picture is actually taken for, at a park just around the corner from my house. So enough, that's Riverdale Riverdale Park there. You can see in the in the background behind this guy. So that's uh, kind of an exciting little touch of home for me. Um, yeah, so it's interesting that Lyft is going to be coming here. So what do you, so what do you guys, so for those of us who don't know about Lyft, I mean, I know Lyft from having been to San Francisco, but I've never used it. How does it compare to Uber? Where does it stand? I've used Lyft uh, a bunch of times. Uh, it's in terms of the service, it's basically the same concept. Uh, I have found though that it's a little bit harder to get a Lyft driver, a Lyft ride, uh, simply because there's fewer of them out there. So often it takes longer for them to show up. Uh, right. I think in terms of cost, it's pretty comparable. It's about the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, although you are allowed to, well, I guess you can now. You're allowed to tip Lyft drivers, whereas you at, for a while you weren't supposed to tip Uber drivers. Although I think you maybe can now. So yeah, I mean they're yeah. they're pretty much they're pretty much the same. Uh, ex- unless unless you're in an area where there's not too many lifts around, and then you might have to wait a little bit. Right. It's interesting what you say about the tip there because um, I've always only ever used Uber in a cab situation where it's a, basically a cab that's got some idle time because he's not got not getting routes from his dispatcher. And um, if I remember correctly, there's always a twenty percent extra on top of the what would be the the normal ride, and that was sort of considered to be split by the driver and Uber in terms of what, what I guess that's where Uber's Uber gets their income from. But uh, maybe it's different with uh, uh, I'm not sure how how they pay out the people driving their own cars kind of thing, right? Which is I think one of the things that people what they call UberX, right? Is that what they call that when it's um, not a cab or a black car? Yeah, yeah UberX. Yep, yep. The other reason I know Lyft is I think Lyft was one of the first companies to sort of switch over to uh, Swift as well, right? If you guys remember that. Yeah, they, they, they were one of the first ones to, to jump on board and they're growing their engineering teams, at least here in the Seattle area, pretty aggressively. So I wouldn't be surprised if they, I, I don't know if they have an engineering team in Toronto, but if they do, I imagine they'll uh, expand it. Right, right. Interesting. And the last follow-up here has to do with what we were talking about last week. And and again, I don't know if this is totally the case yet, but um, the challenge I had getting my um, my data transferred over to my iPhone and I, I kind of, I vaguely remembered something about, I wasn't sure if it was Secure Enclave or something like that or something um, in the, uh, that was preventing, like like blocking the transfer to the, uh, to the new iPhone, which is a different hardware device, right? And we've talked about security a number of times and how Apple um, secures, encrypts data. And it turns out that there is in fact some part of the hardware that's used in uh, creating a unique identifier for the, for the, for the device. Um, and I found a long article. I just posted it here in this tweet, a, a, sec- a section where it talks about that. And we've talked about, there's a there's a link, um, which we'll put in show notes from, we've talked about on the show before, which was an article from Apple Security about how the whole security structure works. And so I don't think I was far off thinking that uh, the encryption um, tying itself to the actual physical hardware uh, could have been part of the problem. Because then remember, you remember we talked about the FBI trying to uh, break into that guy in San Bernardino's phone, the guy who, the, the one who mm-hmm. went around shooting 
targeting rampage. And they could, they said at the time they couldn't just take the data off of his phone and put it on another phone and then, you know, extract it because it was locked somehow to the hardware on the, on the motherboard, right? So there's, there is, I think, some, and you and I, Jaime, were talking about it last week and kind of wondering what the scratching our heads about it. So, and you, you've got another week to go before you get your phone, right? Oh, um, I haven't had quite the, the drama that Mark has. Mine has just been more slight annoyance in that I got a notification that mine would show up, I think, this coming Friday, and then it said Thursday, and then now it says, oh, by the way, it's Monday. So I guess oh, so it's sliding all over. Maybe the there's a lot of traffic, you know, backing up on, on, on the barge or something in Zhenzhou. So I guess, we'll yeah. Happening. Either that or that, or the, the same engineer that writes the progress bars is as uh, is uh, in charge of when shipping comes out now. Yeah. And, you know, those annoying ones <laughs> that would say five more minutes left, and then one minute left, and then, oh, 10 minutes left. And, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so it's a slight little 30 seconds here. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm not super annoyed by it because it's still well within the 17th to the 24th I was originally sure, yeah, promised. Yeah. But I think it would be a much better experience to, even if it hypothetically could come earlier, don't tell me until it's really certain that it's going to come earlier because it just kind of gets your hopes up for nothing. Like that's a really poor user experience to um, over-promise and under-deliver where you would rather they yeah. under-promise and over-deliver. Well, it's funny because I like, as we finished taping last week on Wednesday, I got a notification saying that the two phones that I'd order for ordered for, for the bank are coming to me, right? And, then, and I checked it today again because we, we have a weekly forum and we were talking about when their the devices are coming because everybody needs to test their work on it, right? Um, and it still says the... So I'm two weeks out. So the week of the 24th or 20th, yeah, I'm in the 20s somewhere uh, in terms of when it's coming. But, but why send me a notification now and just to say it's coming? Like, okay, yeah, I get it. But like you, I'd rather know, you know, a couple of days out that it's coming rather than, than two weeks out, right? So it is well, I don't know if I told you guys this, but after UPS officially acknowledged that they lost my phone, yeah. they pushed a notification from the App Store app on my phone saying, hey, your phone was just delivered. Hope you're enjoying it. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned it last week. So that? that's yeah. an, Well, that's annoying though still. That's, right? It was really annoying, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just in time disappointment. Yep. Yeah, maybe like uh, Jaime was sort of hypothesizing that your phone may have been in those, the ones from Oakland that got uh, stolen, right? No, no, no. The timing was wrong for that. It was I think? Not. Oh, okay. Oh. Yeah, we would have been off by about a week, I think. Yeah, yeah but I'm sure that's not nice as a hypothesis until we picked it apart <laughs> the first 30 yeah. seconds of reading the article. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, like, and I've, and I've, I've had notifications of when things are shipping out of, out of China and then when they arrive in you know, Alaska and when they hit the, you know, Texas and then come back up to Winnipeg. And these are like computers that I would follow in the past. Um, as you can sort of follow the, you get the, you know, the UPS tracking ID and you can follow it around as it, as it comes around. Um, you know, it's it's like as if they put a whole bunch of stuff on a skid and they send that all to Texas and then they split it all up and then they distribute it out to uh, the various places it's going to go. So uh, as they break down the skids into smaller, smaller units, right? Like they don't ship one phone, clearly, right? They ship like a skid of phones right? or an entire tanker of phones. Who knows, right? Um, but yeah, I, I guess it's okay that they're letting us know well in advance, but, you know, don't get our tiny little hopes up, right, <laughs> on this stuff. Yeah. And, and I'm surprised, like, you know, to be honest with you, Mark, I'm surprised that Apple Apple, Apple hasn't, you know, stepped up and uh, and fixed your situation. I'm a little surprised, too. They told me last Wednesday that they would contact me in two days and ask yeah. for a new phone. And here it is Tuesday, and I still haven't heard a word from them. Right, right. Did they, did they charge your credit card? Well, yeah. I'm on the uh, update plan, right? So. Oh, right, right. Uh, so you wouldn't yeah. see a distinct charge, right? 
Right. Mm. right. But I did get sort of a nasty message saying that, hey, if I don't ship my phone, my old phone soon, they're going to continue charging me for the old phone. Really? Which was pretty lame, I thought. Yeah, yeah. (sighs) Things are driving us crazy. Yep. And now a word from our sponsor. Are you ready to level up your iOS development career, but not quite sure where to start? RayWendelick.com has the biggest, best, and most up-to-date collection of Swift 4 and iOS 11 books anywhere. From November the 24th to the 27th, RayWendelick.com is having a massive Black Friday sale where you can get any of their books for 50% off. Or you can grab their entire collection of 12 best-selling books for just $199. That's an incredible deal. As an iOS developer, there's simply no better investment you can make in yourself. Head over to store.raywunderlick.com to take advantage of their time-limited Black Friday sale starting November 24th and ending November 27th. So I guess we'll move on. So, uh, Jaime, why don't you tell us about this uh, hacker story you found? Yeah, this is one that's that's making its way uh, around the interwebs, as they might say. A security firm called, um, I don't know, it's B-K-A-V, so Bakav. I don't know, it's 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 not written as if it's an acronym, so I'm going to pronounce it like it's a name. And uh, they have a YouTube video here that uh, hypothetically shows how they were able to defeat Face ID. Um, uh, ostensibly, they, they're claiming here that they have the owner who has registered their face, his face with um, the iPhone 10. And then they have this um, sort of interesting mask that they've set up in a like a little armature sort of thing that has many different components. It has a 3D printed frame that's sort of like the, the main part of the face that I, I guess, you know, is, is molded to look like that guy's face. And then they also have um, 2D images that are sort of like pasted on there of his uh, his eyes and an eyebrow area and then and mouth. And then they also have a, um, a custom silicone nose that I guess was made out of putty of some sort, like the um, like the artist reconstruction or the the forensic, you know, police forensic reconstruction sort of thing. They had an artist recreate his nose structure um, on this mask. And when they show the video, they claim to show that, um, so they have the, the mask hidden underneath a, um, I don't know, like a bit of cloth, and they have the phone set up right in front of it. And they remove the cloth, and it unlocks the phone. And then they show that, you know, then they lock the phone again, they, they take it out of the armrest and they show that the guy is able to unlock it with his own face. And they claim here that they were able to defeat the face ID system. Um, however, the article we'll have in the show notes for those of you driving at home uh, from Ars Technica throws a bit of doubt on that because they point out one thing that I noticed immediately, which was this video does not show us the registration process. So there's a lot of questions out there as to like, well, this thing kind of looks like this guy. So you can imagine that just as face ID retrains itself as you start growing a beard or you, you know, color your hair, you put on makeup, you know, that sort of thing. Um, people are starting to wonder, like, uh, is this really in the up and up? Did they just show that they were able to produce something that's kind of close enough that if you tell Face ID, oh, uh, it failed, but you know what? I'm going to enter my passcode and Face ID, your machine learning system will say, okay, well, this must be this person's face that's different in some sort of way, right? They, they didn't have their beauty sleep last night. But beyond that, the Ars Technica article goes into a little bit more detail about how they chat it back and forth, uh, I think via email, if I'm not mistaken. And they ask some pointed questions and there's a lot of weird hand waviness, vagueness, and a lot of sort of noise that these uh, people at the security firm put up front. Uh, this interesting flowery language about how they, you know, they understand the system, they were able to break it, 
it was like, yeah, 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 whatever. It, it, tell me the answer to the exact question that I have. And, and I don't know what to think. I mean, it, 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 it could be that they have a legit hack. I have my doubts given some of the points that I've brought up here, as well as the points that you can read for yourself in the Ars Technica article. But uh, we'll see. We'll see what ends up happening with it. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's kind of like Apple was sort of pointed out that they had tried various masks and things like that when they were testing uh, ways to defeat the, the uh, face ID. I can, I can tell you that, you know, in the last couple of weeks, you know, it's been cold and hot and cold and hot. And so I've had various, you know, states of like wearing a toque and a scarf. And, you know, sometimes my glasses are, are in the in the sunshine and they turn black, you know, they've got the photo lenses in them. Um, but face ID just generally works, you know, most of the time. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. Like, we don't know what sort of lengths Apple's going to to try and you know um, defeat these this thing. Like you know you want to try and make sure that you're covering all the angles or something like this, right? Um, I'm sure they've gone and gotten like the the sort of Hollywood type death masks that you see of like you know somebody gets decapitated in a movie and they usually they make a mold of their head. And I'm sure Apple tried that stuff, right? So they did. I mean Phil Schiller on the stage at WWDC did talk about the fact that I can't remember what he said about you know he showed the picture of Spock with the mirror universe Spock. Can your evil twin open your phone i don't remember what they said about that yeah they, they, they kind of hand waved that part in, in there but it was real clear that your your evil twin assuming they don't have like a sweet scar that completely throws off um face id there's a pretty good chance they'll be able to log in as you because it won't be able to tell the difference um right <laughs> now because it was slightly unclear before i think what has people sort of concerned about this claim is is, is to, whether it's valid or not is is reconciling what apple said versus what these security folks are saying so what apple said doesn't give enough detail, but I think people so far that I've seen online are speculating that what Apple meant was we created this mask of this person's face, right? Like Tom Cruise style face. And when in their testing, and and again, this is speculation. I don't think Apple itself has come out and said exactly what its testing profile was like. Their test was register it. Let's say like me, right? So register it with my face. Great. Okay. Now grab the mask, aim the phone at the mask. Does the mask register as my face? No. Fantastic. Passes and, and it's truthful and what Apple says. One loophole that people have been hypothesizing about and what everybody so far seems to think is what the security firm um, actually latched onto and the fact that they're kind of evasive makes it seem like that's probably the case is that you can have Face ID fail, but then say, oh, I'm going to put in my passcode and assuming it's close enough and, and nobody knows exactly what close enough means because we don't know Apple's internal algorithm for doing this matching, then it will have the system say, well, this seems close enough you know like this isn't um like a cat in front of me for example something that's obviously not you this seems close enough so okay we'll add that as another data point to say something that looks kind of like this will register as this person's face i think you, that's you the mean that it like learn is this, is this is combination of this face and this passcode are legit and maybe add it to the database is that what you're thinking yeah so so let's let's take a scenario that is distinctly not covered by face id and in, in terms of it does not um allow for multiple faces the way yeah. that it doesn't, yeah. uh, uh, touch ID does, right? So let's say you and your your spouse. So if your spouse is using your phone, touch ID, uh, sorry, face ID will fail, right? And you, if they enter in your passcode, as far as we know, that will not update the face ID system because it'll say, wait, hold on, this mm-hmm. person is completely different. This this could not possibly be the owner. And so that's okay. But when you have something that's close enough, and I think a lot of folks are saying this particular security firm's mask is close enough, like legitimately so, like they tried very hard to make it look close enough to that person. It might be close enough to to fall under the scenario of, oh, you failed to um, 
to be recognized, but you entered in your passcode, which gives us one indication that this might be you. And two, the thing we're looking at right now looks close enough that, oh, okay, well, maybe they just had a bad day. You know, they, they, they got real puffy because they decided to eat peanuts at the bar, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, yeah, yeah. It's close enough to escape by the system. That's what people think is actually being shown here, which is a, a much less problematic sort of uh, vulnerability if we even think of it as that. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't get the whole Mission Impossible, you know, Ethan Hunt, Ethan Hunt face, face swapping technology. I mean, or even the Martin Landau kind of Mission Impossible face swapping technology. Um, so so uh, we, I didn't talk about this last week, but when you do set up um, Face ID, you, you you go in like you do with Touch ID. You go into the, the Face ID setup and it does two distinct scans of your face, right? And and what it does is is you see, if you see the picture of the, the uh, tweet that I linked here, uh, there's a picture of Rene, Rene Ritchie uh, loading up Face ID on his phone. And what it does, it's like the watch. It's got that sort of dial around and you, you sort of have to move your head um, to the left, to the right, up, down, sort of in a circular motion. And it kind of, as you do that, progress bar fills in as it, as it creates a scan of your face in 3D space. And that's what it uses to unlock your phone. And so you, you, and you do that twice. You do two scans and then, okay, it says, okay, I know who you are, Jaime, now, now let's get on with your day, right? So it's, I don't think it's going to learn, you know, through some sort of pseudo matching, um, you know, close enough uh, sort of scenario like you're painting here because it's it's actually set up. It only learns to face twice. Like it has two scans. I'm sure you can go and delete them and rescan your face again later if you decide you know you want it's it's not working well enough for you. Um, but it's I, I don't, it's not it's not set up to learn your face is what I'm getting at, right? Um, that said, we've got a couple of our QA department has a couple of uh, iPhone 10s, and of course they've got the some of the QA people have put their faces into their phone, and so you have developers running around the office and like shining the the phone in the person's face to unlock the phone, right? Which is kind of comical when you think about it. But um, yeah, it, it, that's that's sort of what I know about the Face ID sort of scenario is that, you know, it, it basically builds a map of your face. And again, it's probably similar to how they do with the Touch ID in that it's not actually um, storing an image of your finger per se as it's making an algorithm to match the contours of your finger, like in terms of where the lines are in the fingerprint. And it's probably doing the same thing, making a 3D map, um, you know, with, with uh, triangulation and creating a um, you know texture map and a, and a physical map of your face in 3D space to sort of de- determine that it's you in fact right not a mask or whatever right because you know like I kind of I kind of question I know where you're coming from because I kind of question that too like if I if you know we came over with like the most you know sophisticated um, sci-fi technology that they use in movies all the time and we made a you know a silicon mold of your face and then um, presumably you know reproduce that in a cast and then um, painted it to look like you like you see that all the time in The Walking Dead and shows like that, you know, like shows where, like I said, somebody gets decapitated and the, and the hero holds up his, you know, the dead head or whatever. Um, apologies to people who are squeamish, but um, I, I, you know, I kind of wonder why wouldn't that work? Because, I mean, essentially it's got the contours of your face. It's in 3D space, you know, and for all intents and purposes, it looks like you, right? Um, I wonder why that wouldn't fool Face ID. What What is it like, you know, with your fingerprint, it's also like electrostatic, right? Like it knows that you're, you have, it has to be, or capacitance, uh, what do you call it? It has to have some sort of signal that uh, that that you're alive, you know, and it's not a silicon impression of your fingerprint or whatever, right? Or a hot dog. <laughs> 
Are you there? Yeah, sorry. I thought Mark was going to jump in on that one. So right. well, well, it, it might be measuring not only the the uh, features of your face, but but how the features of your face move with respect to each other. Just right, as right. Feel, your muscles are all twitching and, and you know, you're making tiny little micro gestures of your face. And if it, can, if it can keep track of that, a mask would never capture that. That's true, yeah. And I think I talked about uh, there was a Philips um, app that used to be able to look at your face and, and detect your heartbeat based on the color change in your face. Face, right mm-hmm. yeah so that, that, that may be part of it too right maybe they're using some sort of technology like you're alive technology kind of it's maybe part of their uh their um, pyramid of doom of tests when they're testing it that you are in fact who you say you are right yeah yeah I, I think it's actually plausible though what Javier was saying that every time you successfully uh log in oh, with right. that, yeah. that it's that it's using that to improve its model maybe maybe that's true maybe yeah I mean it would it would make sense if it's I don't know how computationally uh heavy that is uh, and and whether it's you know whether it's feasible to do this but it's i think it's probably feasible that so so this is an example of what's called uh, reinforced learning is is you give it a huge number of examples and you say yes this example passes this example mm-hmm. and you prove the model incrementally every single time you do that so so it sort of makes sense that they would do that. yeah but i mean but like so but in this case here where it gets a near miss of your face and then you enter your passcode you think it would that would reinforce that this is in fact who you you say you are because i mean I, I mean i could just as easily tell my wife what my passcode is and she can get into my phone whether i had my face near it or not right because because what well, happens is, is the face id comes up and if it doesn't if you don't get the face id then it switches over to the passcode immediately right right well the thinking is that that uh you know you have your face has a lot of states a huge huge number of states and it can't really capture every possible feature in your face just with a few pictures because you know it would need thousands and thousands to capture every possible state of your face. But if you tell it that, yes, this is my face by typing in your passcode, then it can add that to its model. So it's yeah. now captured that extra feature. And if if it if you fail to put it in with your with your passcode, well, I don't know if they'd use that as a negative example. That's probably that's probably a bad idea because if you just forgot your passcode, then you're locking yourself out. But uh but yeah. you can certainly use it for positive reinforcement. Yeah, I suppose I suppose we'll have to wait for the white paper from Apple to find out if that's yeah. true or not. So what's yeah. this other part two of your uh, story here about the 10 year old I mean. yeah this is the one that I find is even more entertaining um, so there's a, a different link here from The Verge there's a video from a mother and her 10 year old son that um, again presupposing and claims that her 10 year old son uh, even though his face is not registered it's her face can unlock her phone and oh, they really? show the video of that wow. happening um, and I will point out because this is a um, not a visual medium podcasting when I look at, at the, the video I'm like holy smokes this kid is her clone like if you walked into a room with 100 people and said, pick out the people who are related. I'd be like, yeah, that's that's her son right there. Um, this is very similar, to, I think, to what people tell me about uh, me and my dad. That people will mistake pictures of me for my dad, assuming they don't uh, they don't know me because I apparently look right, a lot right. like him. Um, I mean, I, I admit that I do, but I also like I, I guess I see my own differences enough. But here, I'm like, holy smokes, that 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 is definitively her kid. Uh, and here, uh, the claim is that um, her son is able to unlock the phone using his face. Uh, he was also able to do this. Uh, with his father's phone, but only in one instance. So apparently it, oh, it, was, really? uh, it wasn't it was quite close enough. And that after she re-registered her face under different lighting, her son was no longer unable to unlock her phone. So it, it, kind of a weird sort of tricky thing here. Um, and as noted here in the article, uh, Apple did say that folks under the age of 13 could cause issues with Face ID because of their undeveloped facial features. And oh, really? I assumed that was because they were more like proto-human sort of thing. They haven't fully formed like a, a wee babe in the womb. And uh, I don't know. 
This, I thought this was a wild one. This one, this one actually kind of tickled me a little bit because it's like, yeah, the, the, your family members, depending how closely they look like you, uh, might be able to use your face ID. Yeah, I kind of wondered about identical twins, and and I I happen to know one that I can ask to see if they can try it at some point. But uh, that's interesting because hmm. some you know some twins like they look identical. You wouldn't you wouldn't know that they're that they're not identical twins or that they're two different people. I should say right. And I kind of wonder if the contours are the same because you're you're right. Looking, I just watched the video and put the, put the sound off. But and you're right, the kid looks exactly like his mother. And sure enough, she's able to unlock the phone with her face, and then she hands it to her son, and he's able to do the same thing. Right. So that's just weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But interesting about the under 13, I wonder where, yeah, you said because they're not fully developed they, and they have said that, right? Yeah, and that would make sense to me in terms of, I don't know, uh, these two 13-year-olds might register, uh, sorry, might um, evaluate as the same person given what the limitations are for Face ID. So I understand Apple's point on that, but I had never considered the fact that maybe children uh, of that age might look so close to their parents that it mm-hmm. could trick Face ID. And even then, uh, uh, this mother is not claiming that it works 100% of the time it was like yeah it, she found scenarios where it did and she found scenarios where it didn't depending on um, how she registered mm. well then it clearly it's using a small sample of your face in terms of relationship between the shape of your eyes and nose and mouth right so interesting stuff <laughs> all right let's uh, move on to the next one you got there honey yeah as long as we're talking about what the iphone 10 can do this is a nice little tweet from uh grunum betty which shows the depth information that's stored with each iphone 10 portrait shot and in this case he's got a a photo of, um, I'm not sure what kind of dog that is. It's a lab. It's the lab. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So a, a black lab. And it's, it's really kind of cool. It's, I remember, I don't know, uh, within the past couple of months on this show, we talked about some, um, some paper from the UK that was talking about how they could do this from, um, like flat images. And in this case, this is not a flat image. This is actually like full depth information that the iPhone 10 is getting from the dual camera setup. Right. But right. it looks very sort of similar in, in concept. If you remember what that looked like, where you have the flat picture of the lab and then you see like all these different layers of where they're in snout and their their mouth and their ears and a little bit of the background that got a little bit of weird sort of uh, clipping on here so kind of a little bit of cool info here yeah that's neat yeah all right nothing to add there mark uh no all good <laughs> all right well let's move on to the pick section of the show so mark you have a pick here you have a pick uh, this is an article called much ado about ios app architecture by a guy named i'll probably pronounce this wrong but alexander and uh, so his his main idea is that you read a lot about and hear a lot about all sorts of different app architectures like Viper or MVVM, a million other ones. We've talked about a lot of show as well. And the premise behind a lot of these architectures is that the standard MVC architecture kind of sucks. And the reason that it's bad, according to most of these people who are promoting other architectures, is, is that uh, it tends to lead to massive view controllers. So, you know, mm-hmm. joke that MVC stands for massive controller as opposed to model controller. And and this guy's contention, which which actually makes a lot of sense to me, uh, is that if you are creating massive view controllers, uh, you're kind of doing it wrong. And there's nothing inherently wrong with MVC. And right, MVC yeah. is simple, but it's actually really good. And, and I tend to agree with that. So he, he basically is saying that, well, if you're not using uh, containment correctly in your view controllers, uh, in other words, your view controllers just have everything but the kitchen sink, instead of splitting your view controllers up into sub-embedded view controllers and using delegation and, and protocols and things like that, then you're just, you're you're not uh, taking full 
advantage of MVC and the simplicity that MVC provides. And so this article makes a lot of sense. It's, it's kind of refreshing uh, because I think a lot of times people get wrapped up in the new latest and greatest uh, app architecture and think it must be better because it's new. It's not always the case. Uh, sometimes the the old tried and true are are, uh, are still pretty good. Uh, so yeah, so I recommend it. It's a real quick article. It takes maybe five minutes to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, to me, it makes a lot of sense. Now, I, I will say one caveat. He kind of lessens his impact or lessens his credibility a little bit with his argument uh, towards the end because he starts talking about using a coordinator, uh, which makes it his own, M- I guess, MVV, sorry, MVCC in some sense. Uh, so, you know, so it loses a little bit of the impact at the end. But I still think that he makes a lot of good points and definitely worth a read. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, I think I what I took from it was that MVC uh, definitely does work given what you just described there. Uh, not massive view controller, but actual true model view controller in, in breaking things up into smaller model view controllers. Mm-hmm. And I can see how the coordinator stiff would still be necessary if only for, okay, well, I want to go from this one area to another area. You know, who's responsible to do that? You, you probably wouldn't have um, like an MVC set up for just navigating and routing around. So I think the coordinator there sort of sort of makes sense uh, for that. But I think his point still holds true. And I think what I took out of here is so reading the f- six different sort of bullet points. You know, write as little code as possible. Mm-hmm. Don't fight the SDK tools. Right. Don't replace system frameworks. Lean on swift expressivity. Use as little third-party dependency as possible. Here, here. And use consistent code formatting, which is probably a little less important than the others, but I can see where he's coming from. And even in there, even within uh, swift expressivity, um, he talks about like, hey, uh, you know, it lets you do some nice, elegant things, but uh, pay attention to rules two and three, those being don't replace system frameworks and don't fight the SDK. Uh, he says, I've seen fascinating Swift code, which almost entirely rewrites how essential components like UI table view and collection view are fed and control to the point of needing to relearn how to work with those components. And if you do that, you increase the knowledge curve and, and you also you know, add more time and effort to yourself when Apple inevitably breaks this uh, abstraction that you've made when they add something new to how things work or they change some subtle detail that was, was in there. So yeah. I liked that part because I, I have seen people do some kind of interesting and cool things with Swift, but then I think, holy smokes, it's like, I don't know how to debug that. Like, it's too complicated. <laughs> you know, it looks great and expressive. Like, oh, I'll write this one line, boom, I have a whole, you know, table view set. I was like, oh, that's great. Um, but now I'm seeing something weird on the screen. How do I fix it? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> right. Fantastic. Yeah, like those, those. Um, oh, what do they call it? Uh, is it trailing closures? I'm thinking where they reduce them down to like, you know, dollar sign zero or dollar sign zero, dollar sign one. Um, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. That's that's different than trailing closures. Uh, but yeah, what you're talking about is, is just using the, instead of actually passing the uh, the arguments. The function argument, yeah, yeah. You could just use the dollar sign. Yeah, placeholder, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it gets a little, little, when you first look at it, you're like, what? You have to go back and figure it all back, work it back to figure out what's going on. Yeah, when I first started doing Swift, trailing closures really bothered me because I, I thought there was there was no way that you could do a tra- trailing closure without having some ambiguity about what you're trying to express. Right, yeah. Because it seems like others, other types of structures in the, in the language, but now I use them all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pretty much use them exclusively if I if I possibly can. Yeah, once you figure them out, for sure. Well, it's yeah. like you said last week about the you know using completion handlers and stuff like that rather than creating separate methods and because you can pass things in right much easier than you in Swift than you can previously. But yeah, well, it's I mean closures and blocks are are actually Objective C blocks are actually yeah. very very similar in capability. Uh, the syntax is different, of course, but in terms of what they can do, they're actually quite similar. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's part of the reason why we started they started introducing them back 
and the mid up mid Objective C days. I guess Objective C two point or whatever, right? I'm yeah, they that. came out. They came out in iOS four, I believe. Mm-hmm. That was a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. When Swift was just a, a gleam in Chris Latner's <laughs> eye. Yeah, gleam in his eye. Yeah, yeah. He was he was busy working on LMVM by then. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, it's interesting stuff. It's yeah. it's interesting when because I'm actually looking at a few different sort of um, articles and books on frameworks and art or architectures and uh, the other thing I'm thinking of. You know when you have factory and singleton and um, oh, design like patterns. design patterns design patterns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm looking at looking into those right now and and because uh, we're now using what somebody introduced a thing called an adapter, which is you know basically a wrapper class that you know lets you have two different interfaces talk to each other kind of thing. Um, but you know trying to sort of going through that and I found and you pointed me to this book which sort of has these really simple instead of looking at the gang of four type explanations of things a very sort of simple book that explains to you in in sort of not quite layman's terms but much much easier terms and much easier to swallow um, uh, examples that uh, um, clear up a lot of what these different frameworks do and again I wouldn't even begin to tell you the difference between all of them but there's quite a few of them and it's it's this article here which you're talking about this much ado about iOS app architecture kind of points to that too you know um, Apple must have chosen MVC for a reason and you know in the same sense that Android chose MVP for their own reasons too right um, and then as we deviate, deviate away from them in the example here he shows I think it's something about um, just expressing a UI text field and ends up you know with this uh, Viper method having to create what uh, 10 different class files to do that represent that one thing so it's a kind of extreme example I think right but but it does show that once you get once you start going down some of these roads you know um, it gets a little uh, hard to maintain I guess when it's supposed to be easier to maintain according to theories right mm-hmm. yeah yeah for me I, I tend to take I mean I'm, I'm interested in some of these things like MVP MVP MVVM Viper uh, a little bit less familiar with Redux I know it's coming out of the React camp I have no clue what Cake is I've never heard of yeah. that but I'm assuming it's a layered sort of thing the way Cakes tend to be <laughs> so I'm assuming it's a layered architecture um, but I I'm not super interested in fetishizing them and I say this as somebody who literally has I'm looking at my um, sort of magnet board area here and I have a printout of um, the conceptual architecture for Viper right so I can sort of remind myself of, of what it, it does um, but I don't fetishize, fetishize it as something that is like holy smokes we should do this everywhere and we should use it for everything and I think um, Alexander has pointed out quite simply like for the date picker and the text field thing that like it's way overpowered for probably most cases or at least many of the, the simpler cases mm-hmm. and instead what I like to do is a lot of the the concepts that are like the reasoning behind so not using it as a sort of prescriptive of like oh just do this that and the other and boom you got an app it's like no 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 well what is it that Viper is trying to address or what is it um, as a much easier example what is it that MVVM model view view model is trying to address um, as much as I think that MVC is, is, is all great and dandy is particularly after reading um, this article and, and being uh, sort of reindoctrinated into it I still like using view models but as a very tiny sort of shim to say look I need something that this view can have um, be the, the intelligence for right like the I want the view to be as dumb as possible it literally is just a UI label I don't want it to know anything at all as to how that particular labels text was determined that's the view models responsibility right um, yep. rather than turning it into like oh man like is MVVM better MVC is like well I kind of like aspects of both and I tend to use aspects of both in my projects right. I think that's kind of the takeaway that I have from this mm-hmm. all right so let's move on to your pick here Jaime yes I can't make use of this pick so Tim you will have to try this out and give us some follow-up <laughs> next time okay. uh, so this is a, a project on github called SBS and emoji and as far as I can tell 
Well, the reasoning behind it is to have a, a separate app just to use um, Animoji to get around some of the um, some of the limitations. Like right on the tin, you're able to record videos up to 60 seconds rather than the just 20 seconds that you normally get out of the box with Animoji as hosted within the uh, Messages app. However, um, they point out right up front that like, by the way, uh, this heavily relies on Apple's private API. So you will get smacked down really hard if you tried submitting this to the app store. So, so don't, but you're free to use it on your own device as much as you please. So check it out. Yeah, it's an interesting point because we, we talked last week about uh, um, airplane mode, the band airplane mode, Joe Chipinski and Dave Wiskus and a few other people made that video, right? That two, three, four mm-hmm. minute vi- long video, right? That must have been quite a lot of work when you consider that they would have been able to do it in what, 20 second chunks, you said? If they use the actual um, an emoji feature within right. yeah. messages or if they, I don't know when this particular project and maybe this, maybe there's other projects since they commit history. This came out eight days ago for the initial commit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is by, I should give the credit here. Holy smokes, I'm going to mess up this name. I apologize for butchering this name. Simon Stovering. I'm going to call that Stovering. S-T-O with a cross through it, slash through it. V-R-I-N-G. Simon B-S on GitHub. Well, do we know if the Animojis are are separate images or are they actually models that move in, in like a virtual space? I wonder, eh? I'm a little unclear when, when you say that. So like there is some sort of 3D model under the covers and I'm assuming that's yeah. what it gets mapped to your face. But are you asking, is it well, that? I'm trying, in my head, I'm trying to reverse engineer. I'm trying to reverse engineer um, airplane modes video in my head, knowing that what you just said, it would it would be a pain in the ass to try and do this in 20 second chunks. Maybe what they did was capture the the frames and then split it out to a traditional animation and made like a tile map that they could then use to animate the video that they did. Right. Oh, so if they created like a vocabulary of like this is me going ah, this is me going ooh, or 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 yeah, like maybe what they did was they they um, ran it through like you know played it with an audio track of the, of just the vocal part because um, of course they've got access to that right and then made and then recorded the animoji you know saying or speaking whatever those lines were right so just yeah <laughs> it shows it shows how much effort went into making that little video right well if you're out there and you're listening Joe. and you, you happen to know how to do this and <laughs> you're, you, Joe. you're a member of airplane mode and you happen to know how this was done and you're willing to share it with us um hit us up hashtag ask mtjc on twitter yeah once you finish stop once you stop laughing that is of course right <laughs> <laughs> We're, we're coming after you. We're going to figure out, your, we're going to reverse engineer your your video. All right. <laughs> Which brings us to my pick or picks. I've got two here now. Um, so yeah. So the ulterior motive behind, one of the ulterior motives behind my trying to get my server resurrected was that I've got gigabytes and gigabytes of digital photos. My wife's had a digital camera for pretty close to, I want to say 15 years. Um, so we've had, we've got tons of photos and, and you know, all the time we've been going along with, you know, uh, iPhoto, which was the original way that we got our photos on of our cameras onto our Macs. At one point, the, the her database was growing, you know, 50 gigabytes and 60 gigabytes. So we decided to, for the sake of redundancy and backup and all that kind of stuff, to split the split the the uh, photo library into separate archives. So I got a copy of iPhoto Library Manager, which is what I used to use back in the iPhoto days. And it's a cool piece of software from Fat Cat Software, which allowed you to, you could merge um, multiple libraries together. And they also had a, a, a thing called PowerTunes, which allowed 
allowed you to do the same thing with your iTunes libraries. You could have separate iTunes libraries. You could sync them together. You could have like one iTunes store um, on a on a server somewhere, and you could have two different Macs that have the same library by merging them together. And, and it was just sort of he he'd figured out the, the sort of Apple database thing that goes behind uh, behind iPhoto and behind iTunes. And so those libraries live on one of my servers. And of course, as I said before, it's written it's um, currently in Snow Leopard, which still supports iPhoto. But since we've moved on to I don't know, I don't know when it was Yosemite or or Mavericks or something when they changed iPhoto over to the Photos app. And if you recall, at that time when you first fired up the Photos app, it would take your existing iPhoto library and convert it into a Photos library, which is slightly different. Structured folder structures different inside under the hood, and the database is is I guess more optimized. And then they were going to add things like face recognition and places and and now they have moments and so you can have event-based things and you can create slideshows super easy with photos, right? So that was sort of their, I think it was part of their roadmap was to switch us over to the Photos app. So I had, but I had previously archived these, like I'd archived everything from 2007 and earlier um, in one library. And then I had another one for, you know, uh, each year, 2008, 2009, but they were all in the, in the, fo- the iPhoto format. So I'm kind of stymied as to how to get those uh, converted. And, you know, of course you could copy them over to your Mac and you could run iPhoto and hold the option key down and get it switch over. But our friends over at Fat Cat Software have people who made iPhoto Library Manager have upgraded or changed the application over. And it's it's uh, if you already owned it, it's a simple little upgrade plan. It's a Mac app that's not available on the store. That's called Power Photos, and that's my pick for this week because I was able to use Power Photos over the network to to call up my old iPhoto libraries off the servers and convert them. And so, and of course, you know, as you look at each year, as the, as our cameras got better on our iPhones, you know, they they went from like you know I don't know what the first phone was like a one megapixel or two megapixel all the way up to where we are now 12 megapixel megapixel you know the the more megapixels you have the larger the photo file is going to be so um, initially you know it might take like over the network it might take me like you know uh, an hour let's say to convert the older oldest library uh, over to uh, the new iPhone new photos format and I've able to I've been able to go through over the last couple of days and um, convert all of those over with fi- with power photos app and the largest one was uh, I think 20 gigabytes that I just did finish last night so one of my my wife's largest libraries of all of her, all of her work her portfolio um, yeah so I was able to use power photos to do that over the network and I think it's a great piece of software and then if I ever decide I want to merge all those libraries back together I can also use power photos to do that as well so I recommend you take a look at fatcatsoftware.com to check out power photos or iTunes or power tunes which is their iTunes app if you've got multiple disparate uh, libraries hanging around your house and you want to consolidate them into one or separate them out into others and that's uh, kind of how I uh, got the idea from these guys in the first place to split all the uh, archives into smaller, manage, more manageable sizes, rather than having. And of course, now that I'm on iCloud with uh, with my um, was it 200 gigabyte uh, plan, I can you know merge them all back together and throw up on iCloud if I wanted to as well. Which in the case of you know redundant backup might be a kind of a cool thing. So I mean, it sounds pretty neat as a way to handle things. Um, I didn't quite catch in there. Are you using iCloud backup for your your photos? I am now. Yeah, I am now. So so basically, and and now that we're on iOS 11, both Carol and I were able to we're able to share a family plan, so we can we both share the same amount of space. It used to be that she remember I don't know if you remember a couple of months ago I was talking about her her library was much bigger than mine. So like I have a I have an iPhoto library on my computer, which is all the shots that I've taken with my phones. But she's also got her uh, library on her computer, and, and theoretically now we can we can merge these together into one bi- giant family library. Um, but also with the iPhone, sorry, with the iCloud 
photo sharing, we can now, as a family, um, like you do with, with iTunes purchases, you can also share iCloud accounts and, and merge the photos into one giant store on the uh, on the Apple Store. So we're, we're not paying for two separate accounts now. We pay one right. price and we and we both get benefit of having that, that much space to share, right? Yeah, what I was thinking about was the, the amount of space because I'm looking at what the iCloud storage option. So I happen to be on the 50 gigabyte plan and the next plan up is the 200 gigs. And then after that, the premium is two terabytes. Right. Um, given all the data that you're dealing with, do you find that you're like, that's not enough? Do you feel pressure that it will be, you know, oh no, one more Christmas and holy smokes, we're going to run out of space. Yeah, like like right now, her her photo library, even even after I've archived all these photos, like I, what I did was I like I made an archive of 2001 or 2007 and earlier, which is probably like, you know, all the way back to say 2001 worth of photos. Um, yeah, I think that's what the, the first photo I have on here is 2001. But I, I split those off and stuck them on the server. So they're not on her Mac anymore. So um, I, don't, I have no idea how many gigabytes of, of, of data I would have if I put all these photo libraries back together because I split out the movies into separate ones, right? So I have 2011 movies and 2012 movies, 2013 movies. Sorry, I said misspoke that. 2011 movies, 2012 movies, and 2013 movies. And I stopped archive. I stopped trying to split them up um, in 2014. But you know, um, it was just a way of getting of freeing up some space on the computers, right? Because that was before we had iCloud library, right, or iCloud photos um, to be able to put this much data up there, right? So, so I, and like I said, we're on a 200 megabyte plan, and we're probably using about 60% of that already. So 200 gigabytes. So between Carol and myself, and that's just photos. Photos takes up a lot of space. Did that answer your question? Yes, it does. I was just super <laughs> curious about like, that limitation because it, it, for me, that my plan is is, is plenty. Um, yeah. But if I were to move everything over into iCloud, I would really wonder if I would start bumping up on the two terabyte. Yeah. Well, let me see. I've got my. Let me just have a quick look at the uh, folder here on the Drobo. Um, yeah. So it's also on a Drobo too. And the, and the the other advantage I like about about iCloud Photo, to be honest with you, is that is that um, it's an offsite backup as well, right? Um, I wasn't super happy with it when I first, you know, did that because every time I look at a phone, a photo on my phone, it's kind of fuzzy until it downloads and then you get a clearer version. So you have to wait for the for the uh, internets to catch up to you, right? But here I've got this photo library directory. Let's see this. Yeah, and it works uh, pretty pretty seamlessly too. As an aside, my my fiance was like, "Oh, are you backing up your photos?" I was like, <laughs> "Yes." I mean, they're 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 doubly backed up. I've got iCloud photos as yeah. one route, and then uh, a lower quality but still you know, fairly decent quality backed up to Google Photos. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, no, th- there's some photos that aren't in there. I was like, hmm. Uh-oh. Okay, let's take a look. And then I look, and she's like, hmm. And it turns out to be pictures of our dog that she was interested in. Uh, I was like, right. look, these, like, like, I literally just took a photo right now in front of you, and, and it, it shows up magically in, on the iPad. And it yeah, turns so- out it was her iPad that the photos are on. So. Uh, <laughs> right. so it works so seamlessly that the assumption is that it would be there. But in this case, we're, we're not on like on a family plan or any sort of uh, shared photo stream for, for iCloud that, uh, right. that she would have. Right. So I'm looking at the real-time follow-up and looking at my photo library directly on my uh, Drobo and I've got 214 gigabytes of data. So that's doubled up because I still have the, the iPhoto for, format and then I have the photos format. So let's say that's 100 gigabytes there. And Carol has 80 gigabytes on her Mac upstairs and I probably have... Oh, so no, I should. It's actually smaller now. Now that we've we've moved it up to iCloud itself, but so let's see real quick, iCloud real quick. Yeah, so I've got 82 gigabytes of video. She's got pretty close to around that as much. So that's you know all all in. If I put everything up on iCloud, we'd run out of space easily. And we don't we don't have our backups on the cloud yet, right? That's another another um, thing. And of course, now that we have 256 gigabytes of storage on our phone, on my phone, and she's got uh, 128 on her iPhone 7. So between the two of us, we're uh, we're packing quite a bit of. Uh, 
data. Hate to lose it. Anyway, that's my my first sort of pick. My second pick is sort of a, a sort of funny story. Um, you, you know, we joke about Tammy and I always joke about math on Roundabout and sometimes on this show here too. And so I, I was talking about that. Uh, um, what do we call the thing with singletons and um, design patterns? Design patterns. Yes. Yeah, so I got that design pattern book, and it's published by a website. I've got the link. I'll put a link in the show notes here if people are curious about it. I do recommend it. It's kind of there's a twenty dollar book that you can you can pay. Um, advantage of paying these guys for the book is that you know obviously it gives them puts them some money in their pocket so they can continue to write fabulous stories for us or fabulous things for us but it's sourcemaking.com and so they've got a book there called um, uh, which I found called the design patterns and it's like design patterns explained fairly simply it's not they don't go into great detail they sort of sort of give you the highlights of each one kind of a run through of how it works a little bit of a chart and then some some things to consider and some some pitfalls and that stuff but they've also got another book here which I kind of got interested in called computer science distilled and it runs you through sort of different concepts of computer science and and it's uh, you know as I said I'm always looking at, at ways of uh, learning things myself but also for teaching other people and so it's the, it's basically the book is claims to be the art of solving comp- computational problems and it's all about what computer science is so I started reading through the sample chapters in the book and I'm going through the thing and I, and I got to this one point in the in, early in in the book and it sort of said you know so you know here's here's some situation and here's some some math sort of to figure it out and of course you know as you know that's a quadratic formula and I went I remember hearing about quadratic formulas in high school 38 years ago right and I went but I don't quite remember what that is so I went to Google and, and I went to Wikipedia and I typed you know typed in quadratic formula and it's you know threw some lingo at me and I'm like I have no idea what this says so then it just suddenly dawned on me that I don't even remember high school math at this point you know it's been that long since I other than you know having to do it in day-to-day programming I really couldn't tell you how to like you know do all this stuff so I jumped on Khan Academy and we started going through some of the high school math stuff that's kind of that, I, that I've totally lost because I just haven't been using it in this many years, right? Like I remember doing, you know, functions and relations and calculus and all that kind of stuff in, in the higher levels of, of school. But I don't remember like, you know, simple equations, you know, like how to, how to break down a, something that has variables on both sides of an equal sign and, you know, numbers and stuff like that. Like the little tricks you use to sort of break them down and distill them and solve for X and solve for Y and that kind of stuff, right? So that's kind of, kind of got really rusty in that sense. So it's funny that I, I just laughed to myself when I when I got into this computer science distilled book and realized, man, I've got work to do to go back and refresh on on the basic math stuff as well, right? So I, I recommend these books if you're interested. But uh, yeah, you might you might spend some time with me in Khan Academy on Math One and Math Two and Algebra and functions and relations all, all over again. I'm smiling. I don't know about you guys. I'm smiling too, but maybe for a different reason. <laughs> <laughs> Is this the same book? So I'm looking at, at Amazon and it looks like it's uh, around a I don't know, little less than 200 pages. Uh, yeah, well, most of most of the content, if you really want to know about it, is like they've got a they've got a, a book on UML, they've got one on refactoring pattern design patterns and anti patterns, and you can most of the content is actually on the guy's website, but he's distilled them into books. If you want to, you know, throw them a you know 25 bucks or 25 bucks Canadian, by the way, so it's 50 cents American, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, help support the guy, keep writing stuff. But uh, yeah, it's interesting if you're interested in this stuff, and uh, it's kind of and you're looking for you know the sort of um, simplified uh, explanations just to get you sort of you know a taste of what's going on um, I, I recommend this site it's kind of interesting somebody it just I just found out about it last week so been poking around in there All right so you found the source making site right homie I was actually I'm still looking at the Amazon entry so I'm in the look inside the book because I looked at the table of Amazon content. I don't know if it, is this on Amazon computer science distilled by Vladston Ferrer yeah, yeah yeah his website is is sourcemaking.com if 
you go over there, you can actually just you can actually read most of the book, right? Or read most of the chapters that are in the book, right? At least the design pattern stuff is each. There's a page for each of the design patterns in there, like abstract factory, uh, pool, prototype, singleton, facade, flyway, proxy, adapter, right. and that kind of stuff I talked about earlier, right? Yeah. No, I think I think it's cool to have something that sort of gives you like the in a nutshell sort of um, yeah view things as a refresher or perhaps for folks who, who didn't have the schooling around it. I think one that, that just so happens to be in the freely available first pages you can look at on, on Amazon, the Boolean algebra section is one I highly recommend folks mm-hmm. take a look at because I have debugged and rewritten many um, uh, Boolean expressions within apps uh, that other folks have written that have been a challenge to like, all right, let me, let me write this down as a Boolean algebra set here because I think they're overcomplicating what should just be a simple on-off switch for this label <laughs> as an example. Yeah. This is that's a book on Amazon, you said? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And it kind of reminds me about reading some of the notation and everything related to this. Yeah. It does it very, very informally because there is a little bit more formal um notation for this. But it's good. That means it's um, you know, understandable. You don't need to know like the formal mathematical notation to get the concept of how you can distribute ands and ors, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And Morgan's theorem. Yeah. Which who's the author of that book, Mohammed? Is that Goldstein? Goodstein? Or is it Whitsit uh, or Vladston? Vladston Ferrer. Oh Philippe? no, you are talking about the one that I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Looks like this was published January first, uh, January seventeenth, twenty seventeen. Yeah, it's pretty new stuff. Pretty new stuff, like less than a year old. Sure. Anyway, it's all good. Cool. All right. Well, that's it, I guess, for another week. So, hey, Hami, if people want to find you on the interwebs, where would they look? I'm on Twitter as at Dev with the Hair. All right, and Mark, people want to write you a cursive letter or send you a facsimile. Mark R at Mapsoft.com. All right. Okay. And as usual, I am Timitra T I M M I T R A on the Twitter machine, and we'll see you guys in the future next week. Goodbye. Bye. That was another amazing episode of the More Than Just Code podcast. This is Sean Marston from beautiful rural England. For more about the show and the team, visit the website at mtjc.fm. There you'll find summary and show notes for each episode, and a whole load of other interesting stuff. There are links to the items talked about on the show, and app store links for the pics. You can follow on Facebook and Twitter. The podcast Twitter account is at mtjc underscore podcast. If you like the podcast, leave a comment on the website. If you really liked it, please write a review on iTunes or on Overcast, press the recommend button. If you love the show, as I do, you can show your support by pledging any amount on patreon.com slash mtjc. Every dollar counts. These small things help spread the word and support the show. It's really appreciated. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time. That's enough from me, but I'm going to stick around for the aftershave. So I was um, I was at the Apple Store this past weekend, and I happened to go take a look at the iPhone 10 setup and compare and contrast with the iPhone 7 Plus that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, the 10 is noticeably heavier than the Plus. That's really heavy. You're right. Like I'm sure there's like a stat somewhere that I should have just read online that would have you know prepared me for it, but I knew it was a little bit heavier. I didn't realize how much heavier it happens to be. It feels um, in a weird way. It feels more luxurious. It feels like it deserves <laughs> to be a higher price, right? Yeah. That's funny. yeah. Well, we. 
did talk about the weight of the iPhone 8 Plus being considerably heavy, right? At, at one point um, a few weeks ago. But uh, yes, I didn't. I didn't try out an 8 Plus. In, in retrospect, I think that one is the heaviest phone, right? But is it heavier than exactly. I have an 8 Plus at, at the office, and and this this is the iPhone 10 is heavier, right? Is it? Yeah. So you're right. We should, I guess we could look it up online, but that up. So mind you, Apple has that. Apple has that uh, comparison page, right? Yeah. Yeah. And sure, we could look at this see what it is in grams. There we go. I wonder if the oh, by the way, so one of our Touch Bar Macs just went in for service, and um, I thought I was just I just assumed that the the RAM or that the storage itself was on a separate card, but no, it's like it's, it's like an iPad. It's actually it's actually um, on the logic board. So we have to have the logic board replaced. So they're replacing the whole unit. So if you don't have your data backed up, say bye bye. Yeah, crazy. I've seen people talk about um, getting their their keyboards replaced because one key was was messed up in some way, like it had like a grain of sand underneath yeah. the butterfly switch. It'd yeah. be like five hundred to replace because they're replacing huge portions of the guts because it's all like one integrated unit for the most part. Yeah, yeah. So I have I have one of our keyboards at the office is doing that. And it's like, it's really frustrating. You have to sort of lean on the right-hand side of the key to get it to go down. And it's the command key, which is super annoying, right? Yeah. So right, I, right. apparently people are, compl- I, haven't, I haven't seen the threads myself, but apparently people are complaining about it all over the place, right? Where's the weight of this phone? Did you find a weight? I wasn't looking for it. I was in, involved in the conversation. Oh, okay. And I didn't want to duplicate the effort. I was like, oh, Tim will find it. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. No problem. Tim I mean, I'm not saying it felt bad. You didn't feel like, oh no, this thing is so heavy. It's going to break my arms, my little T-Rex arms. No, but um, it is, it's got that look. You're right though. It does have that sort of luxurious feel, right? Like you'd want it to be, you don't want it to be some lightweight. You no, know? either you want it to weigh nothing, like to float out of your hand almost or, or. Yeah. I mean, so I, if people are kind of wondering, I, I would compare it to, all right, you know, think about a saucepan that you would use and you're going to use it to make, um, some marinara sauce. The kind of pan I have is from JCPenney, I think. And the entire set costs like 200 bucks tops. Mm-hmm. It's probably like $159 US. Mm-hmm. Now compare that to the same kind of saucepan you can get from Williams Sonoma, which is probably 300 just for the tiniest saucepan. <laughs> and it feels luxurious. It feels like, holy smokes, Bobby Flay is going to use this to make something for the president sort of thing, right? Like this is um, this is, this is quality. This is going to be an heirloom you pass along to your, your children sort of thing. Keep it forever, uh, yeah. The iPhone 10 feels like that. That's like, oh, it feels more substantial rather than negatively heavy. Mm-hmm. I still would like it to be lighter for the next generation. But, really? Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. Like I said, that there was a, a poll by uh, Randy Ritchie, I guess, a week or so ago saying, what do you think the next size of um, iPhone should be? Should it be more like an SE size or should it be like a larger plus size, right? Um, it's not quite as big as a plus, but it, but it's not, it's larger than a, than a, than a regular size, like an eight, right? Just slightly though. Yeah, I mean, since it was at the Apple Store for obvious reasons, I didn't shove it into my pocket to see how pocket avail- pocketability right. feels oh. for the iPhone 10. Um, but uh, as a Plus user for the past um, what since 20, 2013? Mm-hmm. 2014, 24, so the past three years, um, the iPhone 10 looks pretty nice in terms of like how does it feel? It, it you get a taller screen. It, of course, it is a little bit narrower, but it, it seems like the screen is so much bigger, but mm-hmm. yet like like psychologically bigger, but yet it, it feels like a much tinier phone in the same package. So it feels like a really good trade-off to me. Um, right. And granted, I know folks who are more comfortable with the iPhone 7 size um, and even uh, smaller like the iPhone SE are going to be probably disappointed because it's considerably bigger than those mm-hmm. um, and feels heavier than the SE for sure. But I could I could see Apple doing different sizes. Like I, I did see, we didn't talk about it on the show, but I did see an article coming out about that Apple would have three different sizes and either in 2018 or 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, a, a successor 
the iPhone 10 and a larger plus size model and then something that's in between that would apparently have a display that's not quite as good and, and that was apparently supposed to be some sort of like I don't know mid-tier phone which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me because it, it, it just doesn't seem like the right sort of scheme it'd be like oh yeah unless it's way way cheaper why would I want to have something that isn't quite as good like why would I make those particular trade-offs this this tweener in between well I could have something that's the size of the iPhone 10 and be fantastic or if I want something bigger like a you know I'm a plus user that still wants to have plus size you can get the bigger phone or I could have something that's kind of in between that isn't as portable nor is it as good as the others hmm. just seems like an odd thing like I'm not saying it's not going to happen but uh, I think the story as it's presented now is missing some critical detail mm-hmm. yeah, you'd think they'd have a smaller one like an SE size but maybe with a better screen or something yeah yeah, yeah. so here's some real-time follow-up so the iPhone 8 is 148 grams the iPhone 10 is 174 grams and the iPhone 8 plus is 202 grams so the iPhone 8 plus is still the heaviest phone so but in American that's five ounces six ounces and seven ounces basically <laughs> mm. yeah so let's see so if you have interesting how, do we have any I'll have to look it up and see how big or how heavy the iPhone 7 plus is well I can look at that up it's still on yeah, I still have that on the site here let's see what was it yeah because you can still buy an iPhone 7 clearly right so whoa oh so uh, quick Google search claims the iPhone 7 plus is 6.63 ounces which would make it heavier than the iPhone 10 at 6.14 ounces right that is counter to what I felt really like, yeah like that that definitely tells the difference between on the scale weight versus how does it actually feel weight right right like the center of gravity is, is a little bit more um, or, or the distribution of weight is a little bit more compact on the, the 10 and maybe that's why I feel it versus sort of distributing the, the full weight on the iPhone 7 well, plus I'm trying to figure out let's see what's the 6 plus plus is why would somebody have that as what else says <laughs> 6 ounces yeah so the the 6 is still heavier too My, mine's just over there I should try it out but yeah it's it's funny it's like maybe because it's like just that much more compact it just feels odd that it's heavy right yeah hmm. very strange mm-hmm. oh we didn't talk about reachability last week um, remember I mentioned I, I, I kind of missed reachability with this phone um, mm-hmm. in the 11.1 upgrade I think or the 11.01 upgrade they added reachability in and you can go into accessibility and turn it on and so now what you do if you if you quickly uh, swipe over the what, what do we call that little strip at the bottom the little um, graphic home button if it I will. think I don't think it has an official name the that Apple has been consistent with. it's like the home <laughs> the landing strip <laughs> the home indicator might be a little bit more uh, safer work as, as something yeah. to repeat yeah yeah <laughs> anyway so the um, you sort of swipe <laughs> your thumb over that really quickly in a downward motion and, and that reproduces the reachability of, of tapping the uh, tapping the home button so it's just and there, and there are you know it's funny uh, we were talking um, Mark was asking last week about uh, about the um, uh, apps not being updated for the iPhone 10 right and of course mm-hmm. you know our favorite app that we all like to talk about device tracker um, is a table view app and I have added uh, in the version I have on my iPhone 10 I have added the, the launch screen storyboard I updated it just before the iPhone 10 came out and so when I turn it sideways um, it doesn't do the split view anymore like the other one does but it shows a single table view sideways like you know so the notch is on the left hand side and it indents the the left edge of the table so that it, it's sort of in a safe area like because this is all done like it's just a standard table view so I get all I get all the benefit of, of Apple's sort of thinking um, so it moves the the uh, 
um, content in the table cells over. But I noticed that I've got, um, uh, what do you call those header, uh, table view headers, um, section headers, I guess they're called, right? Where you can split up your uh, your content. And the, the section header title is is running underneath the um, notch. So it gets cut off as you're scrolling up. And I don't know if that's common to all tables or just my my uh, particular app because I haven't, I'm not using safe safe uh, areas in this app, right? Let me try the mail out here. See if it's... Mm, yeah, yeah. So in that case, it is getting, yeah. So they don't use table headers or table headers in the app or something. Well, let me check the boxes. Yeah, what about like the address book? Does that use table headers for, or section headers? Well, there's there's section headers in the, in the uh, in the mail mailboxes uh, view of the app, of the mail app. And mm-hmm. the, 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 um, the very left edge of everything is, is lined up perfectly so that it avoids the notch by a good, you know, almost 30 pixels, right? What is the address book you said? The contacts page, you mean? Yeah. Oh, yes, you're right. It does, yeah. Yeah, again, so obviously... That goes all the way across, right? Yeah, so obviously I need to go in and do something about my... I'm sure they're probably using safe area there, right? In these uh, in their own apps? Probably. Yeah, so... Actually, you know what Ryan Nystrom pointed out? That, that um, the uh, iTunes Connect app doesn't seem to be optimized for iOS 10. That one actually doesn't surprise me, considering how small compared to the overall population that particular yeah. app is. Like, yes, it's, it's not the sort of thing that developers can be like, oh, man, like, that's terrible, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to buy this. Like, versus, you know, if, if mail looks terrible and yeah. your family's like, oh, man, it looks terrible. I'm going to get something else. Yeah. I wonder if this uses Safari keychain. We'll try that. That's the little key thing in the corner, right? Ace ID. Yeah. Ooh. I brought the autofill password. Thing. I don't know if you, have, have you guys seen that in, does that live in, does it, I guess you get that on the uh, iPhone uh, with iOS 11, I should say, right? The auto, you know, the autofill password where you tap on that little key thing. How would one bring that up? I don't. So if you go, if you go to uh, any app that like, like, well, so iTunes Connect, have you got iTunes Connect on your phone? Mm, let me take a look. You know, when you go to, when you go to a password field or a username password field and the keyboard pops up, there's a key in the top right hand corner of the keyboard, right? And we tap on that. It brings up the, the, um, does it, like, in my case, it does face ID for me, but it brings up the, um, oh yeah, yeah. It says, in my case, it says touch ID to view safe passwords. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? The autofill yeah, password yeah. list? Okay, cool. Yeah. I don't think my Apple ID password here is odd. Oh, here it is. Here. Sign in. Password is incorrect. I took that away. <laughs> Tim, do you still have that 3D printed version of yourself? Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> not high res. You know, you already know where I'm going with this. You should do it's like a, a tweet that's like no, no. the iPhone 10 is, can't be defeated by 3D printing. Fake news. <laughs> Just show a video of yourself. <laughs> Logging in and then try to log in with your 3D printed model. Yeah. Well, so I was, um, um, yeah. So I don't know if I ever told you this, but I took a picture. I have a stormtrooper helmet, and so I put it on. I had one of the Ray, Ray Render like T-shirts on, so I did a selfie and took a picture of myself. And so, and I was thinking that I should post it as uh, Face ID doesn't not fooled by stormtrooper mask. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if you could register the stormtrooper mask as a face. That'd be interesting because then then sounds like a follow up to see. <laughs> can can you actually see out of the mask normally, or is it like little slits? Like, is it glass? It's actually, it's actually pretty. Um, I'm, you know, I, I often wondered why stormtroopers can't aim very well and don't hit very well. You can't really see well, very well out of those masks, right? <laughs> like your whole peripheral vision is gone, and it's just like, and you've got these. Yeah, you sort of have to hold your head at a funny angle to look straight out of them, right? So, yeah, that'd be interesting to see if you could use a, or use like a mannequin. Carol has all those styrofoam mannequins from her hat work. You know, use one of those to make a face. <laughs> <laughs> then you could walk into any store and unlock your phone, right? This Forever Twenty One mannequin. <laughs> Is <laughs> my second factor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, two factor authentication. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. All right. Well, I guess uh, we've had as much fun as we're going to have today. Mark, you're awfully quiet today. I'm tired today. Yeah. Busy day today.